On today's Exploring History podcast, we'll examine some of the key issues in the work of the U.S. Supreme Court. Welcome to Exploring History with Ray Notgrass, a production of Notgrass History. Almost 200 years ago, the French sociologist Alexis de Tocqueville perceptively commented that in the United States, there is hardly a political question which does not, sooner or later, turn into a judicial one, that is, a political issue that winds up in the courts. When we examine issues that have come before the Supreme Court, we see that this has indeed been the case. The court has wrestled with such issues as slavery, freedom of religion and the relation between church and state, freedom of speech and of the press, the rights of accused persons, racial segregation, the power of the federal government, the right of a president to keep secret certain records of his administration, health care, access to abortion, and even how to count votes in a presidential election. De Tocqueville was right. Almost every political question at some point winds up in the courts. First, let's explore history. Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution creates the federal court system. Article 3 is the briefest of the articles that set up the three branches of the federal government. The Constitution created one Supreme Court and allows as many lower courts as Congress chooses to create. In other words, the Founders left it pretty much to Congress to create the federal court system. The Supreme Court was to have original jurisdiction, hearing the first trial and not an appeal, in a few kinds of cases, such as those involving ambassadors, and appellate jurisdiction, hearing appeals of cases already tried, in other cases involving federal law. After the Constitution went into effect as a new limited national government, Congress then had to create a federal legal code. Again, the indication is that the framers expected Congress to fill in the federal legal system. Congress did just that, eventually creating federal district courts, various federal specialty courts, such as those that deal with bankruptcy and trade, and Federal Circuit Courts of Appeal. It has been the cases from the Federal Circuit Courts of Appeal that have come to dominate the work of the Supreme Court. The Constitution calls for the President to appoint judges in these courts with the Senate providing advice and consent. This means that the Senate would confirm or reject the President's appointees rather than the entire Congress doing that. The Constitution also said judges would hold office during good behavior, meaning they could serve for life, assuming they were doing their jobs. The Constitution states that federal judges can be removed from office if the House of Representatives impeaches them and the Senate puts them on trial, and the Senate removes a judge only if two-thirds of the Senate votes to remove them. A handful of federal judges have been impeached and removed from office over the years. Only one Supreme Court justice has been impeached, and the Senate found him not guilty. 
The Federalist was a series of essays published in New York newspapers that encouraged ratification of the Constitution. The Federalist essay regarding the federal court system observed that lifetime appointments were the pattern in state governments at that time. This essay said that lifetime appointments give judges an independence from political pressures that could tend to sway their judgment. We must be able to trust judges and the judicial system. Otherwise, we might be a winner today and a loser tomorrow, depending on who has played the game right and gotten himself appointed as a judge for a period of time. In its first years of existence, the Supreme Court had little work to do while Congress was developing federal law. It was only with the elevation of John Marshall as Chief Justice in 1801 that the Supreme Court began to exercise the function of judicial review. The Federalist essays had pointed out the logical nature of judicial review when it referred to the federal courts, quote, whose duty it must be to declare all acts contrary to the manifest tenor of the Constitution void, unquote. The Federalist said that without the power of judicial review, all claims to particular rights or privileges would amount to nothing. In other words, if laws did not have to abide by the Constitution, the Constitution would be meaningless. The Constitution is the fundamental law of our country. It is the voice of the people, and Congress is the agent of the people to create specific laws for the country. In Chief Justice John Marshall's decision in the case of Marbury v. Madison, Marshall wrote that, quote, it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is, unquote, and, quote, a law repugnant to the Constitution is void, unquote. Thus, judicial review is part and parcel of the federal legal system. However, as we consider these lofty pronouncements, we have to remember that the Supreme Court makes decisions that involve real legal cases that affect real people. The Constitution has to mean something when a little girl wants to go to a public school that is close to her home, but she is black and the law says she can't go to school with white children. The Constitution has to mean something when Tom Brown wants to exercise his freedom of religion and freedom of speech by placing at his own expense the national motto, In God We Trust, on the county courthouse. The Constitution has to mean something when police intimidate the suspect of a crime and don't tell him that he has the right to legal representation. The Constitution has to mean something when a citizen wants to own a gun to defend his family and property. The Supreme Court has to determine, does the law mean this or that when it is applied in this particular case? The court can uphold a law, strike down a law, strike down only part of a law, or refer a case back to a lower court. When the Supreme Court hands down a decision in a case, Neither the President nor Congress can reverse it. Neither side in a case can appeal to another court. A decision by the Supreme Court can wipe off the books laws that have stood for decades or even generations. The only way for a Supreme Court decision to be reversed 
is either by a later Supreme Court decision that reverses an earlier decision, which is a rare occurrence, or by the difficult process of amending the Constitution, another rare event. An inverse of de Tocqueville's observation is the fact that nominations to the Supreme Court, which would appear to be only a judicial function of government, have become a hot political topic. Both sides, liberal and conservative, want to see their side win in every contest in Washington. Because of the power and reach of the court, and because Supreme Court justices can serve for over 30 years, every nomination to the court becomes the focus of heated debate. But this conflict only reflects the more basic conflict about how to interpret the Constitution. On one hand is the perspective called originalism. The late Associate Justice Antonin Scalia was the most eloquent and insistent spokesman for this view. Scalia said that we should understand the Constitution the way that it would most commonly have been understood when it was written. What did it mean in the context of understanding when it was adopted? This is sometimes called original intent, but Scalia argued that we can't really know the founders' minds and hearts, but we can determine what their words meant when they wrote them down. A major issue in interpreting the Constitution arises when someone claims a new right that the Constitution does not address. Originalists assert that if a claimed right is not expressed within the Constitution, it is just that, not expressed, and the issue should be addressed by the states, not the federal government. The Tenth Amendment to the Constitution says, quote, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people, unquote. We can understand why those who advocate the adoption or expansion of a particular right would rather focus their efforts on changing one federal law instead of changing 50 state laws, but the framers intended for us to have a limited federal government. Admittedly, some states in the past have used this limitation on federal power to practice racial discrimination, but the court finally began to rule that such racial discrimination actually violated the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and its guarantee of equal protection under law for all Americans, regardless of the state in which they lived. In other words, racial discrimination was a federal issue, and the original meaning of the Constitution was still the standard. The other main philosophy regarding the Court's interpretation of the Constitution is that which holds that we have a living Constitution whose meaning changes as society changes. This is probably best expressed by Chief Justice Earl Warren in his opinion issued in the case of Tropp v. Dulles in 1958. The Eighth Amendment to the Constitution states that citizens cannot be subject to cruel and unusual punishment. The Tropp v. Dulles case involved whether the law which called for a soldier to lose his citizenship if he deserted his unit was cruel and unusual punishment. Believing that such punishment was cruel and unusual, Chief Justice Warren wrote that 
The amendment must draw its meaning from the evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of a maturing society. In other words, and I hope I paraphrase accurately, Warren's claim was that now we know better than people used to. Our standards have evolved, he was saying. We are a more mature society. His idea was that we need to change the meaning of the Constitution to fit our current worldview. In the living Constitution view, the Constitution means what we think it ought to mean right now. I see several problems with this approach. First, who decides what perspective is the more mature one? Do five people on the Supreme Court decide this? What if our society evolves to take another perspective? Do we change the meaning of the Constitution to fit that changed perspective? How often does that happen? Every five years, or ten, or fifty? And hasn't every society seen itself as mature compared to other or earlier generations? This approach seems to reflect not a set meaning, but simply what a particular justice thinks. Yes, our situation and technologies are different from what they were 230 years ago. And yes, we face issues that the founding generation did not know. But the founding generation did have an understanding of truth, justice, fairness, and other basic principles and specific standards that they embodied in the Constitution. The debate between originalism and a living Constitution is probably one of those debates that will always be around. To help us through this debate, what we need in America is a deep and accurate understanding of what the Constitution actually says and what it means for us as Americans. Modern surveys of civic knowledge usually reflect a pretty dismal level of knowledge of the Constitution on the part of American citizens. Recently, a host on a national television talk show said that, and I quote, the Supreme Court is poised to pass a bill contradicting, unquote, the laws of New York City and New York State on a particular issue. Now, maybe this host just got her words mixed up, but her words reflected a misunderstanding of how our government works. The Supreme Court is not, or is not supposed to be, another legislative branch and does not pass bills. And if the court hands down an opinion, yes, it overrules the laws of every state and community. Maybe that television host was just excited about the topic she was discussing, but we must use accurate language and have an accurate understanding of how our government works if we are going to communicate clearly on the issues we face, develop solutions to our problems, and defend the freedoms that the Constitution protects. I'd like to appeal to Justice Scalia again and refer to a collection of his speeches entitled Scalia Speaks. In it, he said that the Supreme Court cannot preserve the Constitution by itself for the people. He said, quote, A Supreme Court fiercely dedicated to preserving that document cannot exist in the midst of a society that does not understand it. The court is at best a safety net. Ultimately, the most influential interpreters of the document are the people's elected representatives, who, in turn, reflect the understanding of the people." Unquote. He was saying that if Americans have a lack of understanding about the Constitution, or when they change in their understanding, 
The justices will likely bring that lack of understanding or that new understanding with them to the court. We Americans can't afford to abandon our responsibility to understand how our government works. We, the people, must claim and know the government by which we live. I'm Ray Notgrass. Thanks for exploring history with me today. This has been Exploring History with Ray Notgrass, a production of Notgrass History. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app, and please leave a rating and review so that we can reach more people with our episodes. Ray and his son John recently presented a webinar on the Supreme Court. If you would like to see a recording of that webinar, as well as some related resources, check out the link in the show notes. We also have an extended discussion of the Supreme Court in the high school curriculum, Exploring Government from Notgrass History. If you want to learn about new homeschool resources and opportunities from Notgrass History, you can sign up for our email newsletter at exploringhistorypodcast.com. This program was produced by me, Titus Anderson. Thanks for listening.